Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. To me as a clinician, it creates a distance between us and a person's known experience. And it enters it from, as you said, a dismissive tone. I don't think juice fasts work. As opposed to the curiosity that we need as individuals. Where'd you hear about that? What happened? What'd you feel like? Are you going to do it again? What was your favorite juice? We're all of a sudden now, you and I are having a conversation about your experience of food because it's yours. And so when I find myself in that defensive spot, this isn't science-based, this person, I really try to take a step back and I encourage everybody to do that and try and what, what is conjuring that feeling for you. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Can we eat to beat depression? Mental health is a hugely complex multifactorial issue with multiple causes that can have its roots in pain, psychological trauma, childhood, and the complexity of family life. But Through the lens of traditional psychiatry, food, inflammation, and the importance of gut health and nutrition have largely been ignored. Now, we've had some incredible guests on the pod to talk about this very subject in the past, including Professor Felice Jacka, Dr. Umin and Drew Ramsey himself. But the magnitude of the problem and the need to continually address these issues that are responsible for the leading cause of disability worldwide really does motivate me to continue to have these difficult but important conversations on the podcast. Now, as always, Dr. Drew brings his unique and humble style of humor, joy and playfulness to what is a difficult topic to talk about. And this isn't to understate the subject, but to make it I believe, more accessible and to provide almost an invitation for more discussion around these topics. And I 
personally humbly tip my hat to the work that he has done and continues to do in teaching both the public and fellow clinicians in the the value of nutrition and medicine. As a refresher, if you haven't heard my first conversation with Drew, Dr. Drew Ramsey is a leading innovator in mental health. He combines clinical excellence, nutritional interventions, and creative media, and he's an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia in an active clinical practice role in New York City. His latest book that we talk about today, Eat to Be Depression, is perhaps what I believe is his best yet, which includes a practical guide on how and why food is central to psychiatry and how you can take care of your brain and mood with food. I really hope you enjoyed today's discussion. You can find the recipe that Drew made me for the first time in the podcast on YouTube and the podcast show notes, plus the links to his courses and TED Talk that I highly recommend you listen to at thedoxeskitchen.com. For now, enjoy the podcast and listen right to the end for his three top tips. Drew, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast again. It's great to have you. You were honestly one of the most popular guests of last year when it came out and the number of messages I've had um, to get you back on, to talk about the subject again, to do more stuff on your chosen specialty and how nutrition uh, crosses that. Um, honestly, it's it's a pleasure to have you back on. Rupi, it's nice to see you again, especially now in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, and to um, and thank you for that. I'm glad everybody listening is glad. I'm glad to be back, and I'm glad that the message resonated. And I'm I'm excited to talk about really how everybody can maybe take that information to to the next level. And also, Rupi, congratulations! I, I just love. I think I got probably the first one of the first U.S. copies of Three Two One, and I felt and it's such a beautiful book. I'm sure everybody listening has has gotten a copy and seen it. I just love. It's really influenced my cooking. As is, you'll see, I've got a question. I mean, I, I guess is we're supposed to talk about books and stuff, but I'm, I've got a lot of questions for you because I'm here. <laughs> ingredients but it's really good to see you man thank you so much for having me back on yeah definitely well i want to get primarily into um your latest book you've done a whole bunch now um as well as your ted talks and your practice and all the rest of it but um why don't we start with uh i i can't cook with you today unfortunately it's uh one of those situations where I'm no, they, they told me they told me that you didn't want to cook with me because i needed a lesson first to get my <laughs> skills up to speed but that's what your producer told karen was like Drew, you're good, but you're you're not Ruby's level yet. He's gonna. I've got knife skills. I've got this dull knife. You're gonna help. Me. That's not okay. You're moving. I hear. I'm moving. I'm moving. So all my stuff's packed away in boxes. But um, you're gonna take us through. This is good. This is gonna be a podcast first. You're gonna take us through a uh, a recipe, a, a formula for a pesto. That's uh, something that you're you're. Uh, super interested in and passionate about teaching people the sort of ways in which they can heighten the nutrient density of their food through the lens of uh, nutritional psychiatry. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that's why I think you and I are, are brothers in culinary medicine in the sense of really how do we use these foods to support our mental health? In incredible research coming out about that. In Vietnam, there was a study, a multi-hospital system, looked at over 10,000 patients and cross-sectional study, so you're not the strongest data, but they found a thousand percent increase in depression for people in quarantine 
when they were eating an unhealthy diet. Wow. And you and I know studies, you don't see that sort of no. risk factor rate of uh, 10.6, so 1,060%. And so I think more now, now more than ever, we all know, unlike last time when we spoke, we've been in a quarantine, um, in lockdown for you in the UK. And so we really have this need both to look at our relationship with food. We're all cooking for ourselves like never before, but also how do we support our mental health right now? Because yeah. I mean, everybody's getting challenged so much by this virus. Yeah, exactly. And you know, no more than ever have I noticed that um, both the media and the government are taking mental health uh, even more seriously because I think a lot of people understand, and this is something I want to get into a little bit later about post-viral fatigue and the um, the how it mimics a number of other conditions that we, we see already in practice. But, um, you know, we're, we're all waiting for this tsunami of mental health-related illnesses that are going to occur at a much later date after the immediate aftermath of the virus at the moment. So, you know, that is something that I, I'm almost like, it's in my gut and I'm priming myself for it. And I think we need to have those honest conversations now to anticipate what the inevitable is. You're, you're right. Um, everybody is gritting their teeth in a way as we power through this. There's some light in the sense of vaccines. There's also still lots of concerns and unknowns, variants popping up. And in that state, it's hard to grieve and grieve for whether you've lost a family member directly, or whether you've had yeah. COVID and lost some function, or whether you've lost your job or, or just lost your life as you knew it, uh, which so many of us have some aspect of that really just um, lost things. And processing grief, as everybody listening knows, it's really complicated. None of it's linear. It, you know, over time it gets better, but then you have, you know, I left my quarantine of 10 and a half months for the first time. Mm. Uh, very, very, uh, I hope, safe, socially distanced. You can drive from Indiana to Wyoming without going in a public restroom, in case anybody listening is wondering. But uh, all of the feelings my family and I were having in the midst of being excited to be out and, and at the same time, all the powerful feelings of, you know, what the world is like right now. And so, um, so you're right. We're, we are going to be confronted with that and need space for that. I think it's also very, so hard for our colleagues in healthcare where they were already working at the max. Now it's been so much more. There's been so much trauma that people have seen and been through so much emotional trauma as, as you know, Rupi, you're on the front lines. Uh, and, um, and it's not like then you're going to get a month off. You get a little mm -hmm. time off, but you'll be back in it again. And, and, yeah. and that's, that's what we signed up for in healthcare, but I think everybody has a version of that personally right now. And it's why nutrition and food are important. Uh, it's, it's funny, I signed the contract for this book in February. So literally COVID came out and we're sitting, uh, and I'm sitting with all of the data about how food influences the risk of depression and anxiety. And then the new exciting data, really a lot of it um, uh, you know, coming out of Australia and the UK, a lot of interesting research on how can we use food to better insulate people against depression or if you have depression or anxiety how can we use food in the way the culinary medicine hopes that we will and then tells us to with the most recent science to help people get better you know that even with our best treatments psychotherapy antidepressant medications not everyone's going into full remission from depression and anxiety we also know a lot of people don't have access to treatment but everybody is 
doing their best to maybe feed themselves, especially your listeners, for their, their overall wellness. And so nutritional psychiatry, this phrase Rupi used, as, as everyone who listened to the last podcast, this is really about how do we take food and apply it to mental health. And, and mm-hmm. so yeah, everything's been horrible about this. There's no silver linings in this cloud, but it's been, uh, it's made me hopeful that there's been such an openness now that we all have about our mental health. You know, you've been through, you've been through COVID, you've been through the wards, you've been through the ICUs. I mean, it's, um, that's affecting you. And I think you're talking about that more, everyone's talking about that more. And then because we're at home, everyone's talking about food, but you're just kind of like scratching your head. Um, I don't know how many people have had that experience of gone back and gotten something from restaurant, restaurant (laughs) or carry out. And you're like, whoa, this is really salty or this is really expensive. <laughs> what was I doing? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, let's uh, let's uh, go for the positive tone. And I want to congratulate on your book. Incredible. Tell us the title. Tell us sort of the uh, the theme behind it and this exciting recipe you're about to, to make for us. Yeah, so the book is Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety. And, and the book centers around the new science around nutritional psychiatry, food and mental health. And I'm really big on, I, I like talking about the nerdy stuff, all the nutrients. So mm. we go through 12 nutrients we can talk about that, that um, a colleague and I recognized and published in the antidepressant food scale. And these are uh, the nutrients that in the scientific literature are most related to depression and anxiety. And, we, and then we ask that question that's so important because we get so fixated on you know, B12 and magnesium and, and omega-3 fats and which fish oil pill to take. That Where do you find those in food? Mm. Now, I'm sure you've had this feeling uh, also with our colleagues in medicine where we're talking about folate, but if you go around the room, say, hey, where do you find folate? Yeah. Like, you know, on a prenatal vitamin, uh, <laughs> in the supplement aisle. It's like, well, lentils, <laughs> asparagus, right? So... The book and nutrition, my, my work, I really hope to educate people around what foods you find these nutrients in. I think that's the best place for there to serve your mental health. And also, mm. I think with depression and anxiety and mental health conditions, what makes those conditions so hard is unlike, um, you know, I've got a, I've got a little um, new spot here on my face, right? And I can see it. I know what it is. I know what to do about it. But mental health, it's, it, it's, it's not something we can see or touch exactly sometimes. And, and so what to do then about it can be elusive going to therapy, which I highly recommend. I've been in therapy forever. It's, it's a wonderful, I think process of self-improvement, but not everybody's from a culture that's going to do that or has access mm-hmm. to that, or is comfortable with that medications again, helpful to a lot of people, but food foods in everyone's everyday life. And so, so the book really revolves around this new information, the important foods, and then really getting, to the nitty gritty of some issues like the inflammation in the microbiome and how those are really, we, we toss those around, talk about those in terms of heart health, but those are really profound new ideas in terms of mental health and brain health. Um, and then the book gets into a six week plan. You know, I'm, I'm a clinician. And so I'm not a, I don't know, I'm not, a, I do a little research, but I'm, I'm really interested in the rubber hitting the road, as we say, how does this information get people better? How does everyone listening to this podcast, is there some way that through this conversation through the next uh, few minutes, can we, can we say some things that, that shift how you think about food a little bit so you're better feeding your brain? And, and so the book has a lot of illustrations. I hope people will check it out. It's uh, to really encourage folks to be creative and joyful in their eating. And that's the other part about the book that's new for me, Rupi, is taking that clinical work of being a psychiatrist and getting to sit with patients and, and being a psychiatrist 
and then asking people in detail about their food has just taught me so much about food and mm. so much about my patients that I never would have known and really so much about mental health. And I wanted to take that in this book and put it together. It's in some of the chapters where I really, I talk about diet culture and personal motivation and really how can we tap into something that is really beyond and above all of the noise of what people are telling us to do about food really tap into your own sense of joyfulness, your own culture and food. And what I'm going to prescribe for you, to, if you're depressed, Rupi, it's going to be different than I'm going to prescribe for someone else or someone listening, because you all have unique tastes as eaters, unique values. And as a psychiatrist, which I think puts us in a little bit of a unique spot in the nutrition world, I'm really interested in you being you. You know, I'm not interested in you being a vegan because that's right, or you being a carnivore because that's right. I'm really interested in what about that makes you feel great and, and, yeah. and how that works for you and what the implications are of your diet and dietary choices in terms of what other foods you might need to emphasize. So that was a long-winded spiel of the book, which ends in a six-week plan to really help people <laughs> actualize. You know, we talk about mental health awareness, but I'm really big these days into mental health action, right? Can you hear this and do something different today. And, yeah. and that's really what my hope is for the book. Definitely. I mean, there's a few things I really want to unpick there. And the one thing that I think that you mentioned a couple of times is the cultural aspect around eating food and how important it is to, in a sense, personalize your suggestions to the person in front of you. I've always said this on the podcast, you know, just because a Mediterranean diet has been demonstrated to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease or improve your ratios of cholesterol and the various ways in which we measure the risk factors around in cholesterol doesn't mean you need to create a diet that is Mediterranean flavored. It can be as reflective on the person in front of you as much as what they're used to eating. So meeting them where they're at is something that I've learned from, you know, over 10 years of, of experience now doing this. But I, I wonder- You're, you're you a clinician, could... but you're also from a culture that's super healthy for mental health. The food is, and it's not Mediterranean. And so yeah. <laughs> there is a way that the Mediterranean diet has become, you know, the beauty of the ball. And the data for mental health really exists around all traditional diets. There, there's mm. not as strong data because there are only randomized clinical trials using a Mediterranean style diet. But when we think about what does that diet do, it's the same thing that your, your style of food does. You know, um, and it, 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 it's a lot of plants, it's a lot of fiber, it's a lot of um, uh, uh, these really interesting uh, phytonutrients in plants that I think become an interesting part of the argument there. Um, mm. So, Lots of nutrients, we say nutritional density. Um, but yeah, we've got to personalize it. I think that's something that's gotten lost in medicine where it, I think it's part of the wokeness that's happening where there's been this hierarchical top down. Like I am the doctor is authority. Let me tell you cholesterol and fat are bad. So is meat, <laughs> so is eggs, so is dairy, plants are good. Go. And, and yeah. that really, that didn't yeah. help. And I don't even think there was like plants are good. There was just like eat other things than that. And, and I found that really I got caught up in that in college and in medical school as a low fat vegetarian for over 10 years. Um, I, I, I grow my, my own food out on our farm in Indiana. So I, I bought into a lot of that and, and it left me being, I would say much more prone to depression, mm. much. I would pass out in class a lot in the middle of the day, not because of any, you know, hangover, anything like that. I'm a very sober person, but, but um, 
more so just this overwhelming fatigue. And, you know, mm. and so I think like you, I really was influenced on how food information leads to changes and leads to changes in health. And then yeah. in, I, as I added in more of these foods that we talk a lot about in the book, we have our power players, which are, everybody kind of gets down to like, all right, all right, great health science, microbiomes. I'm like, what do we eat for dinner? And so our power players are really foods from each, we call food category. And so nutritional psychiatry, instead of trying to say, wild salmon and anchovies, I say, Rupi, tell me about your relationship with seafood. I know there are a lot of amazing shrimp dishes in the book, mm. but I was also curious about like your experience with things like mackerel and salmon. And I get really curious about your relationship bivalves. You know, how do you feel about clams? Yeah. And, and to hear about that, to hear what, what really works for you in that food category. Um, I've met a lot of people on a plant-based diet who love mussels. And I mean, I light up when I hear that because the muscle has every nutrient that you would ever need in a vitamin to go with a vegan diet, to have nutritional, what I did in my last book to eat complete, getting all of your mm. nutrients. from food. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, again, I, I think one of the words that I picked up on there was um, traditional. So, you know, what is the traditional diet for you? And my traditional diet, you know, in Punjabi Indian, so my traditional diet is lentils and whole wheat and spinach or a, a stew that we call sarg, which is basically every dark green leafy vegetable you can imagine mashed into this delicious pan with a few spices to make it, you know, even more delicious. Um, sarg, and here is this, uh, this, yeah, that's like... That's one of our. That's, that's definitely one of our favorite dishes of your. Definitely, cuisine. that's that's a staple uh, for a while when we lived in New York. So amazing, yeah. And you know, you can make that whatever way you like um, in terms of whatever greens you have available to you. So you know, those sort of elements I think are super important to remember that we can eat with uh, our cultural heritage in mind. But I think another thing that you spoke about was micronutrients. So I. I think as clinicians and even in nutritional science, because a lot of the research papers that we have available to us are either funded by supplement companies or use supplements because it's far easier to perform that type of research means that, better, you know, means it's, that it's better science. Exactly. Vitamin C versus placebo. Amazing science. Love that science. Double blind. Exactly. <laughs> and I just think we haven't, I don't know how we're going to solve this, but there's just, you cannot placebo control food. Yeah. You yeah, can't say, exactly. like, here is, boy, this salmon tastes the same, looks the same, like the sag right here, totally the same. You're like, that's the placebo salmon. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So there are inherent flaws in the way we're ever going to be able to do dietary interventions, plus the expense, plus the compliance and all the other uh, caveats to to doing that sort of science. But I I think that's kind of why we fall back on the need to look at micronutrients in isolation. And then you have some, you know, key things, oh, vitamin B12 or folate's really good for this or omega-3 long chain fatty acids. You've got to get that for your brain health. And in reality, it's looking at that incredible science and you know some some great studies out there but translating that into a plate of food which is something that you do very well um and you're about to show us as well with your, oh with my, your yeah, I see my second camera you know it's 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 a little everybody listening i got super nervous this morning cooking with uh cooking for Rupi. <laughs> also i'm not in my home kitchen so i'm going to show everybody a, a a kale basil pesto but, but before that, Ruby, I have a, a couple questions for you. Um, for and, um, and one of them 
is, uh, as I post on Instagram, my human conundrum. So in our clinic, the Brain Food Clinic in New York City, we've been a wonderful therapist and food coach, Samantha Elkreef. Samantha's a huge fan of human. And so about a year ago, you know, I said, I, I just, you know how we all want to spruce up our diet a little bit, or I don't know, I like progression and everything that I'm doing, you know, just a little bit of, I don't know, I've got a couple of my favorites here, like it was one of the power players of this uh, purple yam, right? Because it, it's lovely, really, yeah. Those are probably a lot of people listening now. Oops, see, I'm already spilling olive oil everywhere. Um, <laughs> the color purple denotes anthocyanins, these, these really interesting molecules that we know protect the brain, and they figured out now, at least the article that came out in Nature, that the way or one of the mechanisms by which they decrease inflammation is by how the anthocyanins uh, influence the microbiome that it's not a direct brain effect, it's a microbiome effect, at least one of the mechanisms mm. of the cyanins. And so, so foods, um, when we think about the food category, before I cook this basic idea in the six-week plan, not to give away the book, everybody, hope everybody will check it out, but it's to really focus on these food categories that in our clinic we see people struggle with. Mm. So leafy greens is one of them, again, really nutrient-dense, you're getting all of this vitamin K, vitamin C, vitamin A, uh, these carotenoids, all these phytonutrients, fiber, um, so how do we kind of increase the nutrient density of someone's diet with leafy greens, with rainbow vegetables, like those purple yams, with seafood, um, with nuts, beans, and seeds. One of the reasons that I love pesto is it's a way to get more of these really healthy oleic acid fats. Everyone debates about fat and I don't know, I'm just... I guess I'm a psychiatrist, like competition's fine with me. I'm not really scared of it emotionally. Like I'm happy, like confront me, but I, you know, I'm, I also kind of curious where like everybody agrees and everybody agrees about olive oil and monounsaturated fats. And, and so nuts, um, it's interesting. One of the molecules when we talk mental health, everyone gets all excited about serotonin or dopamine. One of the molecules that I really have been promoting, it's my favorite brain molecule is BDNF brain derived neurotrophic factor. And it's this neurohormone that really, coaches the brain or encourages the brain to sprout new connections, to reach out. Uh, to, and I, I like thinking about that. I like thinking about neurons the way I think about people. Like when I met you, Rupi, you know, it was a great connection. We had a great meal at a great restaurant. It was like, just knew we we're going to be friends and, and how that kind of, you know, just, I don't know, lights everybody up when you have that experience. Right. And the same thing I think happens to neurons. They reach out, they touch another neuron. And I'm like, Whoa, Hey, hey. <laughs> and, so BDNF encourages our brains to do this, to literally make new connections. It also encourages the birth of new brain cells. Mm. And that's such a new idea that it really hasn't translated into clinical medicine enough because it sounds kind of crazy. Yeah. But when I finished medical school, year was 2000, and we learned you don't make more brain cells in adult life, a process called neurogenesis. We now know that's wrong. That's how actually some of these new uh, medicines that are being tried for depression, things like ketamine and even some of the hallucinogens like psilocybin, there is this notion of them inducing rapid neurogenesis and new connections in the brain. And so food can also do that. And the reason I'm, I'm saying all this is there's only one study ever that I've been able to find in the scientific literature. Everybody listening, you look around, there are going to be more, but prove it, I hope there are more. And it shows that nuts, they just study of the Mediterranean diet plus olive oil or the Mediterranean diet plus extra nuts. And people who got extra nuts, over a couple of years, they had this protection where they, they have protection against severely low BDNF levels. And, and it's not a perfect biomarker for depression, but it's just a really interesting finding. Cause like this like neurohormone that makes your brain grow and new connections. Like I want more of that in my blood. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> and so, 
so nuts, I think, are a good way to do that. These are pine nuts, which are the classic pesto, because they also think as you're experimenting with food, you want to kind of take something you like and add in something new. I'm a kind of a fan of you change one or two things. And so if you have not really done a lot of pesto, you've had it once or twice, you've had your gnocchi genovese in the restaurant, or I, I think that, you know, maybe try a new nut or add in another green, but get used to that and then start to jazz it up. But nuts are one of the key ingredients of pesto. And again, great source of fats, fiber, phytonutrients. I'm also really interested in their minerality. We're yeah. looking for things like magnesium or iron, um, yes. nuts and seeds and beans are an interesting spot. I've got a bunch of... Drew, I, I just want to say I love the way you talk about food and you make those analogies like, you know, how BDNF coaches the brain and how it's like you know meeting a new friend or meeting someone that you're going to gel with for the first time like i would love to be a fly on the wall in your psychiatry clinic because i can imagine you know this is kind of the way you get people on board psychiatry clinic is like a bummer and and i really try i, I don't want to ever avoid sadness or grief i mean psychotherapy is not a stand-up mm. comedy time but i do think there's something about humor healthy humor that really is important. And I think there's something about creativity. The reason I love being a therapist and a psychiatrist is the amount of creativity. I literally, you can say anything. Yeah. And, and if it's in, if it's thought out, it's in the spirit of being helpful. It's in the spirit of understanding something deeper. Um, it, it, and so, but thank you, Rupi. That's very nice to say. And it leads me to your first, because I have questions for you, sir. As I said, everybody, I hope you check out the book. We're going to make some best of it. Let's get down to brass tacks here, which is when we did the antidepressant food scale watercress, right, which is this yeah. leafy green right here, came out as the number one plant. And again, these were the foods, the top plants and animal foods that have the most of these 12 nutrients. I just thought, why don't we just do the simple math? And like, if you want to have the most nutrient density of these antidepressant nutrients, B12, folate, what foods should you eat? So watercress is number one. And I was, and, and so then, as I said, I'm not at my home. I'm in Wyoming. I'm, there's like some random nice grocery store down there i'm walking through to get my kale for the kale pesto that we're going to make and to see if they have some sad basil which they did um but <laughs> oh, that it's, looks it's not pretty that well was up a little water and then there it was it was like a sign from the universe you're going to get to talk about watercress with Dr. Ruby, but the, Definitely. I, i've only and this is again talking with patients about food i once talked to a woman from haiti and she said, oh, watercress, we serve that at every meal. Wow, and again, really? this notion of traditional diets, right? No one would ever say, yeah. or no one has said yet, like, I should prescribe a Haitian diet to fight depression. But if you at least base your dietary or some of your choices on this research that we've done, watercress would be in there. But Ruby, what do you do with watercress? So watercress, I think, is one of the most phenomenal ingredients. It grows all over the UK. We have it in this probably the same amount in terms of the stores in the US in terms of abundance is always there. It's one of the highest um, levels of vitamin K and folate, but it also is part of the brassica family because it contains sulforaphane and a whole bunch of other um, phytonutrients that give its uh, disease fighting properties. The way I tend to use watercress because of its bitterness is with um, something that kind of mellows the place. You need almost something sweet to go with it. So it does work as a finishing ingredient for a curry, um, particularly if you've used some sweet uh, herbs in the curry, like holy basil or something like that, throwing watercress at the end. The other way I like to use it is in a, 
I've got a recipe actually in the in the new book three two one uh, in a ranch dressing. So um, when you combine tahini, olive oil, a tiny bit of sh- uh, like a, a sweetener, like a maple syrup or something, a little bit of chili, and you put that over the bitter leaves of watercress, again it kind of mellows that quite strong flavor. And uh, I I I love using it in that respect, but it can be quite bitter for people who are not used to those dark green leafy vegetables. Thank you for that, Doctor. That's exactly what I needed. And uh, watercress uh, ranch dressing with tahini. I mean, that's that is like that makes my day. And again, I think I also want to bring that up because watercress, like seafood, was not a part of my diet when I was a resident at Columbia, um, and where I'm still on the faculty, and, and where I've really gotten to develop a lot of these ideas and 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 just have great colleagues in mental health, really kind of pushing, you know, good science and good clinical care. Uh, it, it's just, um, uh, you know, it's not something that I ate. And, and so I, I think take Rupi's advice of, you know, add these things a little bit. And, and I love the idea of putting it in. I, I started to see like a, so it's just the alucho, the, the potatoes, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, and a nice cooked down tomatoes and sometimes chickpeas, right. With a little bit of water. Cause I was having it. It's, it's super bitter. So this is something that maybe you'd try in a pesto. Um, the other thing uh, that at least in the book, we, um, use a, 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 you know, one of my favorites, which is taking your traditional basil and adding mm. in some kale. And so mm. what I would do if I had a food processor, which, you know, I did, I wanted to know I tried, I mean, I tried with the blender. And <laughs> that is a sad looking blender. But uh, I'll chop this a little bit maybe. Um, and uh-huh. I'm just going to chop it all roughly together now because I love these greens and I don't need them blended up too much for me to really enjoy them. And then I just want to uh, just, um, uh, to explain to the listener. So this is something I, I I think is super innovative because it's almost like a combination of your your previous books. You, you've created this anti-depression food scale of nutrient dense ingredients that contain those twelve sort of nutrients that you want to try and get more into your diet to eat complete, as you say in your in your previous book. And you've given that scale in your in your book and and you know these are some of the ingredients that you're using with. I think that's a really good way of doing what we were saying earlier, of translating that research into something that's that's truly achievable for people. Um, you know, and 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 you know, creating pesters like this. You know, when it's when it's a recommendation like you know, eat less of a nutrient. I think we just, you know, our educational systems haven't really raised people or educated people around where to find these foods. And so as you're saying, mm. it really pushes us towards a model of nutrition that's based mm. on one, it's just based on science. It's not based on all of what traditional food has taught us. Yeah. And, and two, it, it tends to get people really fearful and anxious. They're not getting enough of X and you know, yeah. how can you get it? It's, it's, we call it concrete thinking in psychiatry where it's not nuanced thinking, it's like B12, good, need B12, mm. take more B12. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's not how nutrition works. Um, yeah. So and everyone just, this is my favorite thing to do with kale. And so again, usually I just put this in a food processor, but if you have some hot pasta or hot gnocchi, um, and maybe brain health people don't like to say pasta and gnocchi, but I do. And yeah. um, they, they say I'm a pioneer in this field. So I'm just going to say it now on this podcast. I think pasta is a great way to deliver brain food, just like I think potatoes are a great way and, and brown rice is a great way. And I'm a fan of all those. So definitely, um, definitely. It's so just this is I a think... chiffonade. And so my other favorite recipe in the book is the uh, all kale Caesar, because I, I think I told you my my favorite piece of historical research on the last podcast, Rupi. Did I tell you about that? 
Tell me about it again. Ancient Rome. Did I tell you about ancient Rome? No, tell In me ancient about Rome. It. So people, when we had National Kale Day, we still have National Kale Day, but we're promoting kale. People were saying, you know, it's a fad food. People still say that it's like a fad food. Mm. You know, really kind of talking negative. And then there are these researchers that found in ancient Rome, these like ancient like kale, um, like drawings and, and this, this notion that ancient Romans ate kale. And then of course, you know, it's true, right? Because they, they all walked around what they said, right? All kale yeah. Caesar. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, so we take our kale, and here I blended up a bunch of garlic. There's like four or five cloves of garlic, olive uh -huh. oil, so garlic, olive oil, and I got some of the greens all, you know, in there. I'm just gonna throw in this chiffonade I like again because I make this all kale Caesar salad with it. And mm -hmm. do the same thing. I'm just gonna tear the basil up. Well, I I, I just want to go back to one thing you said earlier, actually, about you know um, potatoes and pasta and stuff i think you know a lot of people have a bit of snobbery around food and that you can't eat certain things or you can't label it as healthy but really it comes down to a couple of things um quality and dose if you're eating quality foods with whole grains and you're getting enough of the variety and you're getting you know a, a, a moderate amount of whatever it might be whether it be a, a processed product or sugar or um, even fats to a certain extent as well. You know, when you've got the right combination there, then most meals can be considered healthy and you can make it a brain healthy meal, a heart healthy meal and a mood healthy meal as well. Yeah, I think these things really combine well. Just a little tip here because of my past life as a um, kale lobbyist and head of, you know, a large kale mafia organization, the, the <laughs> potassium's in the stem of the kale. And so it's one of the oh. reasons that blending it up in a food processor or um, putting it into a smoothie. You know, a lot of people, you'll, you know, you'll see this, right? We'll, we'll strip the, the, yeah. uh, uh, the kale off the spine and throw in the leaves. So I did not like know that. Kale, that is news like to me. Constructed. So I've got my pine nuts and mm -hmm. my uh, pistachios is what I decided to add in. One of my favorites, I'll do almonds in here walnuts a little bitterness in there sometimes but you can really use any nut and again as you think about diet having diversity is good that with the different nuts you're getting different phytonutrients different colors mean different phytonutrients um mm. and so i love the tip about the stem honestly that's news to me and i i think you know the 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 way i see sort of using the stems and the roots of ingredients is from the fiber perspective but i didn't realize about the concentration of potassium that's super interesting just for the listeners you're you're mixing it around in a bowl <laughs> and so you know the idea is again lots of sure little, little carby lovely bundle but lots of um garlic lots of olive oil Lots of greens, lots of nuts. That I mean, that looks fantastic. And it's a meal straight away. And, you know, that would carry very well into the next day and it would intensify in flavor. And, you know, the bitterness would mellow if you leave it overnight as well, even. So that's uh, congratulations. My chef hat goes off to you. Thank you. I mean, <laughs> people ask about gnocchi. The other reason I like gnocchi is just to mix up my pasta game. It's the same reason. Oh, that, there you go. <laughs> right, where... I like potatoes, as I've said, great source of potassium, great source of iodine. Mm. Gnocchi are also really easy to make at home. If you're having that, you know, crave to make homemade pasta, you can definitely make wheat-based pastas or buckwheat-based pasta. Another great soba noodles is a fun way to do this. And then I'll also make a big batch of this. So Rupi and I are both busy docs and uh, I've got a family, I've got two kids and a wonderful wife. And so anything where I can make a batch and stick it in the 
fridge of something that, you know, my kids love hummus. They love pesto. Mm. It just, it just helps, right? Yeah. For, for life happens and you need a quick meal. And so pesto freezes really well. Actually, when I went to medical school, because we have a farm in Indiana, we make lots and lots of, I mean, a basal plant will be, I don't know, four feet high. And it's just so much pesto in there. That's why mom would make these like packets of pesto and yeah. wrap them up in wax paper and put them in the freezer. And so a lot of times I'd make some gnocchi or I'd get a, um, back then I wasn't really eating any fish, but I'd you know, get some veggies or I'd make a little pizza. But instead of just cheese and sauce, I'd put in a big crumble of pesto. And again, just bumping up that nutrient intensity. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that, that that's fantastic tips. And I, I think, you know, there's so many different ways in which to use that structure that you've put in the book as well to incorporate a variety of things. And I love the use of pistachios as well. That's definitely one of my favorite nuts. I'm podcasting at altitude here for the first time and I'm in okay shape, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's, I was like, is this my anxiety? It's like, no, I just at like 7,000, 8,000 feet. Um, <laughs> you look like a pro man. You look like a pro. I do hope that the plan really helps people actualize this information. And the plan goes through six weeks to really, there's this idea that, that um, when all of our, when you prescribe antidepressants or do psychotherapy with people or give people supplements that we think have an antidepressant effect, we really are looking at day 28, four mm -hmm. weeks out. That's what most of the study kind of endpoint is. At four weeks, a month, does this medicine, supplement, uh, intervention, does it get your symptoms lower in depression? We then noticed in a large American study called STAR-D that some people got better at like five weeks and six weeks. And so now I tell patients it's like four to six weeks. Mm. And, and when you think about that, okay, what are antidepressants doing? Well, first of all, antidepressants fight inflammation. People don't know about antidepressants like Prozac, and we call it in the U.S., or fluoxetine. Yeah. They're, some of them are massive central anti-inflammatories. But this mm -hmm. idea that part of what's driving depression for some people, you know, depression comes from a lot of different places. It can come from our psychology. It can come from trauma. It can come from inflammation. Like if you're, I don't know, have celiac disease and you're eating lots of gluten, you're going to have inflammation in your gut. You're going to have inflammation in your brain. And you're going to have actually a study of individuals with celiac disease who went on a gluten-free diet. At the beginning of the study, 75% of them had severe anxiety. And it was about three times the, the uh, uh, normal population, regular non-celiac population. It kind of makes sense. Celiac disease is, you know, you, you've got cramping, bloating, yeah. diarrhea. It's horrible. Mm -hmm. They got on a gluten-free diet their anxiety levels went down to matching the regular population without celiac disease. So mm -hmm. just as, as one example, you know, of how things like inflammation influence our mental health. Yeah. And so we walk through people through the information and then through the plan. And then the last part of the plan is, is called your food roots. It's really, again, guiding people through some exercises, some, some self-query, but specific instructions. So week one's leafy greens. There's leafy green recipes like the pesto with the real quick thing of like, Let's eat leafy greens this week. What does that mean to you? What's it going to look like? Which one's it going to be? And then checking in at the end of that week, how'd it go? Um, the last week is really about getting your sense of your um, source of food joyfulness um, and how to connect. Again, just like those brain cells we talked about, Rupi, reaching out, connecting. That really is my model because when I meet, excuse me, when I meet people, and I, and I hear their struggling with depression and anxiety. I'm usually hearing about how those symptoms are really eroding the connections in their life, the connections mm -hmm. to their self-esteem because of their work, because their work function isn't as good. Their connections to their loved ones because 
they're really focused on how badly they feel because they feel so awful that you don't have that um, capacity for you know the best of what we do, connecting with people, engaging with one another, helping one another. Um, and, and so I really hope to help people connect up to no matter where you live now. And I tell a story that it, when I got really back into food after leaving the farm, it was when I was in downtown Manhattan and I was suddenly living next to a farmer's market again. And, and all of a sudden, I'm eating all this diverse, fresh produce, just like when I was growing up on the farm. And, 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 and to, so to really connect and make connections with your food community. And so each of these sections has recipes to help people incorporate these foods, really with the attention to a lot of people don't like seafood. I didn't like seafood for most of my life. I eat every type of seafood. So I want to explain to people both how that happened for me, but also how maybe it can happen for them. Um, same thing with leafy greens. You and I know we promote a lot of plants. A lot of people just, for whatever reason, don't like this or that. Okay, how, again, how do you meet people where they are and work with them? Just an anecdote for me, you know, I used to hate mushrooms and it's because I didn't, prepare mushrooms in the right way i hadn't tried a variety of different mushrooms and i always remember i went to a pub uh, a few years ago this is when i was still in medical school and they had gerols on the menu and i said to the waiter you know what are gerols he said are oh, mushrooms i said i'll just leave that on the side and i remember visually like just vividly wh what my reaction was when i tried this beautiful Girol that had been pan fried in a bit of garlic and olive oil and it was like amazing and it completely changed my perspective on mushrooms because the ones that i had what grown is up a, what with, is a what's a Girol mushroom it's similar to a a chantore mushroom it's kind of like a wild mushroom it's kind of small it's got a beautiful structure to it a slight yellowness and it's got a, a a sweetness to it and when combined with garlic it just tastes like nothing else that you've tried in terms of the mushroom you know, different types of mushrooms. I mean, the ones that I grew up with when I was a kid and I probably had a bad experience were like soggy, overcooked mushrooms with a poor texture and I just didn't didn't like those at all. Um, so I, I think to your point, you know, people can be met where they're at where we can actually change and modulate our taste buds to appreciate different ingredients uh, as they're prepared differently and as they're presented differently there's there's a couple of things i just wanted to to pick up on there that you mentioned that i just thought were so eloquently put the foundation for why people have uh, issues with with mental health or mental health conditions or you know uh, diagnoses can be so different in in one case it might be the nutritional component and one you know element it could be a childhood component a psychological component a pain component a connection component. there's so many different components and and what we're, what you're talking about in your book is you know one component very important very you know critical to address across most people but just one component because you're a specialist in a field that is so so complex and i don't think people appreciate that it can't just be a pill for every ill diagnosis yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it's it's hard because medications in some ways have been so stigmatized and, and I think talked about by a lot of people who either don't use them well or individuals mm. who understandably don't like them because they've had a bad experience or a bad side effect or have had a family member, um, you know, have either weight gain or, or you know, had even worse depression. And so, yeah. you know, I certainly appreciate those criticisms. I think at the same time, as you're saying, when when I think about my job, my job is eliminating depression. 
as quickly mm. as possible. And so nobody wants that. Some, you know, until that job is done, um, I'm sitting with somebody who's really depressed, mm. and and that's um, that's hard to. I would say it's hard to. Yeah, it's hard to tolerate in some ways as a doctor to learn to because it doesn't go away right away. As anybody with mm. severe depression knows, or resistant depression knows. You can be doing everything right. You can be eating lots of kale pesto and, and, and wild salmon and anchovies and, and still maybe need to uh, get into a therapy around a trauma you had or a trauma that maybe people don't even see as a trauma, right? Like mm. you were raised in a wonderful household and everybody thought it was great, but actually it was really cold on the inside of that house. Mm. Um, and just, there wasn't a lot of hugs. You know, that really influences how people love, how people care for themselves, how people Absolutely. nourish themselves. And so that's the kind of work I hope that people will be encouraged to do. And as you say, food is one aspect. I think one of the things that excited me about nutritional psychiatry when I really started this journey over a decade ago now was it's one of those aspects that just hasn't been talked about. I mean, I talked yeah. to some of you know, I have incredibly interesting, very smart, very educated patients who is news to them. They haven't really yeah. ever thought about and they know and it's what's also strange to me Rupi, is everyone knows we emotionally eat like oh what are you doing like oh comfort food like i'm down yeah, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> right that that we all know when we're anxious what do we eat but there's also this weird disconnect that we don't kind of think about that our brain is this just incredibly complex nuanced mm. you know gift miracle that we've been given like you won the lottery you have a human brain it can do mm. anything mm. um that you know it does better on certain foods. We, we, and in certain foods are really toxic to it. Anybody who's drank too much alcohol, good case in point. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, but I, I do hope that uh, my work and, and the effort of lots of nutritional psychiatrists um, and the researchers like Felice Jacka, um, mm. you know, wonderful researcher uh, who did the SMILES trial, really the first randomized trial around um, using food to treat depression. Uh, Umanadu at Harvard. So there's, you know, I, I think it's a growing movement. And, and mostly I just want people to hear today that as we are all struggling with the human emotions of depression and anxiety, and that's different than a clinical diagnosis. And I think what I always want to be clear about is that clinical depression and anxiety really merits and deserves clinical treatment. The symptoms of depression and anxiety really deserve a strategic plan for your mental wellness and mental fitness for you, just as a person. That those are kind of some of the hurdles I think for everyone of how do we how do we deal with all of the anxieties that we have, especially now in the world, and still function and in some ways enjoy our lives. I and mean, that's a huge challenge right now. How do we be surrounded by all of the grief and pain and death and fear that's going on? And still have gratitude, yeah. and so it's you know it's not like food's going to solve any of that, but but I do think that having your brain nourished in a way that tilts it towards more optimism, and then also that action helps. We you know it's everybody knows you start the run, you're like oh, you finish the run, all those moments you wanted to stop you didn't, you feel amazing, and that's not yeah. endorphins. That's 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 a basic simple principle of human psychology that humans love to be loved. And even if that's self-love, we love that too. We're just like, yeah. human, human brains are needy beasts that way. And, uh, and that's kind of what makes them, I guess, sort of wonderful and in constant need of connection. Yeah. I mean, it, there's so much of that that resonates with my way of thinking. And I'm sure the listeners as well do appreciate that perspective, particularly given your position as a, uh, as a psychiatrist as well. And someone who's been, really at the forefront of this 
area of uh, research and uh, you know this burgeoning movement that aims to disrupt our traditional thinking around the importance of food as it pertains to mental health. I mean, it's been over almost six years, I guess, since that group of researchers, you know, uh, kind of coined the term um, of nutritional psychiatry and, and got together to sort of pioneer and, 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 and really push this global effort to inspire more people about the role of diet and mental health uh, conditions. Where do you see the, the field as it is at the moment? And, and how far do you think we've got to go before we see a situation where all practitioners kind of blindly agree that, of course, diet's got a role in it in the same way psychotherapy and pharmaceuticals do? I think we have a long t- way to go. I think that we don't have a healthcare system that's geared towards treating health. As, a, you know, as many people know, we have a healthcare system designed to treat illness. That's really important. Um, Anytime I'm sick or there's trauma, I'm, I'm really grateful for all of my colleagues. Mm. And, and, and so, and in some ways, Ruby, I've kind of moved towards this because I'm an individual practitioner. I think I focus so much on the individual that I think the way it changes is that every individual listening asks their doctor. I, I really have, um, but the way, the things that need to change, at least in the U.S., system in terms of mental health, I think is the major training organizations, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Psychological Association, um, uh, the Association of Social Workers that, that, that diet be included in training, which is not a hard thing. Uh, you know, that, that we just launched the first, if there are any clinicians listening, the first nutritional psychiatry clinical training, a 10 continuing education hour credit course. Uh, that goes over all of the research that currently exists about nutritional psychiatry in a, in a very balanced way. And also talks about our clinical technique, how I as a psychiatrist have really worked to incorporate nutrition uh, to work with other uh, practitioners. Um, as I mentioned, uh, we have a great therapist and health coach, uh, Samantha Elkreef, that's really helped in um, thinking about how do we, again, actualize. Um, I think sometimes mental health care, in a good, you know, for, for good reason, gets passive. I really want to hear that stuff that you don't tell anybody else. And if I'm shoving kale pesto down your throat, it, it doesn't, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not the stance I want to be in. And, and at the same time, if we're an evidence-based profession, you can't ignore that there is a replicated high correlation between diet and the prevalence of depression and anxiety. And now there are four randomized clinical trials showing it a positive outcome of using food to treat mental health conditions and, and one negative trial. So, so I, I, I do see part of my work is really pounding a drum of action to change. There has been more of that in the last year. I've gotten to lecture at, at a number of residency training programs and a number of state psychological um, associations really all over the country in the U.S. from Hawaii to Vermont um, and so there's a lot of interest with lots of positive feedback. Also, the American Psychiatric Association has been really supportive of me and my work. I've gotten to present um, a group of us four or five, six times there, along with Chef David Boulay, for example. Nice. And those are packed rooms. I mean, we've had 600 people sitting in a room in rapt attention about food and mental health. Mm-hmm. So I do think that there is a change afoot. I think that um, part of the barrier to that is also how the wellness world has owned a piece of mental health. And 
some of that has been great. And some of that I think has created though a division that there's wellness and there's medicine mm. and that um, uh, it's created, I think in some ways a lot of confusion for people and in some ways there, who is an expert and who can actually help people get better has really opened up in some way that I think is confusing to medicine. The idea that, you know, there are coaches who are more effective at getting people better in depression than I am. Um, that, and they have great Instagram following and a huge brand and people really look to them as an authority on the subject because they translate science so well, because it, that's a new phenomena. Yeah. Influencer phenomenon. I think it's really, what's interesting to me as a clinician to see how that actually helps so many people engage in the mental health, but they never come and talk to me for whatever reason. And, and so there's more kind of resources than ever before. And so, so I, I think it, it, the short of it is I'm hopeful. We didn't have research, right? The first randomized trial ever to really test this just came out two years ago. Hmm. And, and in some ways that tells you about, it leaves you scratching your head for me. It is not rocket science. Mm. Brain is the most complex organ. It uses more calories than anything else in your body. It is super complex nutritionally. I don't know if you're treating anxiety, depression, if you're looking to prevent things like psychosis, wouldn't you really implement diet in an active way, not in a passive recommendation way? And, and you know, so, so I do think there's a challenge to my field too, and to medicine, as you know, to understand where this fits and to do it effectively. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, with depression and uh, anxiety and a number of other mental health issues being the leading causes of disability in the world, you would think that we would pay a lot more attention to the organ that consumes the most amount of energy and is super sensitive to fluctuations as such. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't actually... I think I've come across some of the work that you've done with other practitioners and upskilling them, but I had no idea about how it's, uh, you know, it's blossomed. So we're definitely going to link to that in the show notes, because I'm assuming that this training is something that you can access from wherever you are in the world. Is that correct? If you're a practitioner? Yeah, it's an, it's an e-training and uh, everybody listening will, will include a special code. So you get a discount. I'm um, being a, a friend of, of Rupi. Uh, who's, <laughs> I hope everybody can tell listening one of my favorite docs and uh you know i think i think i fantasize about having a clinic with you someday just like <laughs> yeah. cool docs like awesome kitchen like treating like one stop like mental health physical health prevention so someday um and i look forward to getting to, to cook with you but anybody who wants to take the course it's um we offered it live we filmed it live so it's really dynamic it's really concentrated because I wanted to cram everything that I've learned about this, all of the controversies, all of the questions a patient asks, the patient handouts that we use, how we evaluate patients, really to give clinicians a launching off point. Because, you know, I see this as a developing movement and my job is to really encourage people, all clinicians to include a food assessment when you're talking about mental health. Not as the only thing, like somebody comes in suicidally depressed, do not send them home with the salmon recipe and a pat on mm. the back do a real mm -hmm. assessment and take care of their mental health. But at some point in that treatment, you want to help them craft a lifestyle plan that is going to prevent depression. And if it doesn't include exercise and food, I don't, I don't think I'm, for me personally, I don't think I'm doing my job. If my job is to help people reach their optimal mental health and reach a state of mental fitness, if I don't help them understand the barriers to maybe not running, right. But movement and joyfulness mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. proper nutrition and self-care and, 
mindfulness, I don't think I'm equipping them as well as I can. And so, um, and I do think there's more of that than there ever has been before in the mental health field, this notion of lifestyle playing a role. And um, so, you know, it's, it's going to be an ex- interesting final chapters of our career here over the next 20, 30 years. Oh, oh definitely. I did play yeah. it. I did play it. Oh, you do? Oh, wow. I mean, please put that on Instagram. It'd be a shame for people not to say, oh, you don't. Don't put it on the floor now. <laughs> uh, and, I, uh, and, and I just let everybody know, I would probably sprinkle. I was looking in the fridge. I was looking for a little shaved Parmesan to sprinkle on there. And that <laughs> it's like 7 a.m. here. So was, that's going to be my that'll be a good breakfast. <laughs> I love having leftovers that are savory for breakfast anyway. So you share that. Listen, I definitely share the same vision as well about having a cool doctor clinic. We'll have to talk about that off air at some point. But uh, I just wanted to reiterate, you know, just how much I respect you because of the humility that you've demonstrated by appreciating the impact that people who are influencers and people who are on social media have in a positive way on other people. I think as medics, we are, you know, expected to be dismissive of anything that isn't within our sort of medical realm. But the fact that you appreciate that there are people putting out positivity that that benefit people in a way that perhaps they physician could not i i think it really does demonstrate um just how nice a person you are and i'd love for you to to round up this conversation perhaps with maybe three tips that have been taken from your latest work um that could that could get people sort of thinking about food and nutritional psychiatry in a way that you kind of want people to to move toward all right. Well, for sure, I'll give three tips. I think, Rupi, also to that end of what you're saying is a basic rule of mental health and psychiatry that I've learned, which is around defensiveness. Mm. And then we find ourselves in a sense of, of, of defending our turf or dismissing other people's work or, you know, hearing that the juice cleanse worked, even when we don't believe in juice cleanses. <laughs> it, it, to me, as a clinician, it creates a distance between us and a person's known experience. And it enters it from, as you said, a dismissive tone. I don't think juice fasts work. As opposed to the curiosity that we need as individuals. Mm-hmm. Where'd you hear about that? What happened? What'd you feel like? Are you going to do it again? What was your favorite juice? We're all of a sudden now, you and I are having a conversation about your experience of food because it's yours. And so when I find myself in that defensive spot, this isn't science-based, this person, I really try to take a step back and I encourage everybody to do that and try and what what is conjuring that feeling for you? In terms of three steps that that come from the new book, Eat to Beat Depression, and and three kind of, in some ways, basic tenets of nutritional psychiatry, I, I would say that my work on this book is really what bubbled to the top for me was really a sense of engaging in a mindful way with self-nourishment that, that has a, a feeling of joyfulness. Not, not that every time I'm here at the stove or on the road that I'm like, oh, you know, wow, this ham and cheese croissant, you know, oh my goodness. <laughs> but, but that when that you are really intentional about having time to structure your nutrition, your cooking and your self-care in a, in, and to get to a state of joyfulness about it. So, because I think so often we get into this and it's a mindset, right? The food is a burden, it's boring, we don't want to do it. And, and to me, that in some ways is an element of, of a type of depressogenic, I don't know, attitude, right? That you're not really worthy of care or that there isn't an easy way to do it because you're a smart, thoughtful person. Mm. Um, I, I think 
So that first tenet, I guess, would be find joyfulness in your in your self-nourishment in food. That's why one of the big power players, I can't believe that the biz at the end is the biggest selling point of the book, is dark chocolate. There's a whole freaking food category on dark chocolate because <laughs> dark chocolate is such an amazing brain food, but I think illustrates this principle of have fun and enjoy food. This is this is a can be a really delicious and joyful ride as you nourish your brain. This isn't about deprivation. I think a, a, a second uh, rule for me is or kind of idea from the book is really around the dynamics of brain growth, growth, and it kind of put this sort of holy trinity of neuroplasticity, brain growth, inflammation, which is you know us not dealing with our exhaust, and the microbiome, which is this idea of the way we eat shapes how our gut works and all of these bacteria that live in our gut that are healthy and, and promotes how they modulate and really run the immune system, but also communicate with the brain. And we go into a deep dive of this in the book of a lot of the studies that showed the types of foods you eat influence the bugs in your gut and the bugs in your gut actually influence things like how well you think or how emotional you are, or even how anxious you are. I mean, it's just fascinating new science. So I think that's the kind of second bullet point. Um, and then I think the third is to connect, that if you're not connected to your food supply, if you're not connected to the, I heard this great quote from a chef uh, said something about, you know, you, you shouldn't ever cook food when you don't have love in your heart. And I was like, damn, that's a tall order. Like at 6am, I'm making pancakes. I'm not in the best mood. Like there's a love in my heart. I'm scrambling these eggs. But I, I thought it was a really beautiful intention to have. Yeah. That when you're cooking for the self and other people to, to really be intentional about what that is, that that is at the very basis of nourishment. There cannot be human love without proper nourishment because without proper nourishment, we are anxious, we are depressed. Um, our thinking is foggy and cloudy and we can't really, you know, for everybody listening, you know what it's like when you're functioning the best of your ability. You know, we all can, we, and oftentimes we'll think back to that time. Like, well, I remember that time back then. And, and I really, you know, if there's a closing point, Ruby, it's to challenge everyone to really get very clear with yourself of that you can get to that spot in 2021, uh, that there are lots of tools you have at your disposal to, to get there. Food is one of them. Mm. And that there can really be this kind of um, expansion of your ability to connect both with self and other. And so I hope the book sparks a discussion in that. I hope the e-course and clinicians watching, uh, coaches, psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, really any flavor. They say, who's the course for? It's like anybody who talks about mental health, if you're a trainer and you're talking to people about mental health, why not have the latest information so you can make recommendations with a little more confidence or a little more nuance. Um, uh, but yeah, I think this notion of really nourishing our brains for optimal connection, I guess, is my hope. And to think about it that way, you know, when you're, when you got that little gnocchi in your mind and you're looking at it and it's just cheese and sh tomato sauce and you're like, I can make this gnocchi more nutrient dense and it'll take better care of my brain. <laughs> Drew, honestly, it is always a pleasure chatting to you because you're able to blend humor and a sincere uh, approach to some very sinister and serious subjects with, you know, a respect for the science, respect for patience and you know, just again, bringing joy to everything that you, uh, you, you, you're involved in. Um, it's always a pleasure to chat. You welcome any time in the podcast. Honestly, you, I mean that you are one of the most popular guests that we've ever had. And uh, I just can't wait to see what 2021 brings for you. And the book is absolutely fantastic. 
Well, thank you so much for being, you know, I love, I love speaking with you. I can't wait to cook with you someday. I hope everybody will just put it out there in the universe that Rupi and I can cook for you all together someday. Cause I, I really like that. And, and I just hope that everybody listening just really hears my message. Uh, the, the most important message beyond my book and, and food is just that you take care of your mental health and you prioritize that above anything, because when you take care of your mental health, you build your mental fitness, what you're going to bring to your own life and to the lives of the people around you. I know this from my personal experience. I know this from all the patients that I work with who have really been on a journey of healing that, that um, great things will happen. Great things will come from that effort. There, there is no better spot for you to focus your effort, in my opinion. I guess I'm biased as a psychiatrist, but just also as a, as a person, as a, as a man, as a, a father and a husband, I just, I want everyone to really feel encouraged uh, to, to take care of your mental health in a, in a really intentional and daily way. And, and if anybody listening is struggling, and I, just, I always want to end on this note, is, is to reach out to someone and let mm-hmm. them know. I think both Ruby and I know as we've dealt with our mental health and being docs that it's so easy to isolate and sit alone with this stuff. And so if anybody listening is having a hard time, please, please reach out to anyone because I know that your community your friends your family your connections they want to hear about it and they want to be helpful too. mate that is such a lovely way to to end it i really hope you enjoyed those tips and that discussion with dr drew he is a pleasure to have on the podcast any further questions you have do send them to us on social media and check out his TED talk uh, the links of which are all on the doctorskitchen.com on the podcast show notes I will see you here next time even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.